First John. Verses, and we'll be going verses 24 to, down to 28 today. First John chapter 2, 24. Therefore let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Let's pray. God, we're reminded right now that you are holy, 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 completely transcendent, completely above us in every way. You don't need anything from us. And yet, Lord, you choose to reveal yourself to us. What a thought. What a, what a wonder. God, may we wonder at that as we sit and we read your word and as we hear your word now. That you, the God of eternity, has revealed yourself. You are worthy of it all. Guide our hearts in that, we pray. Bind us to you, we ask. Help us to be attentive, open our ears, open our eyes to hear your word, to be encouraged, challenged, and changed into your image, Lord Jesus, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So if you remember last week, we talked about a hard, a hard topic, I thought it was a hard topic at least, talking about the Antichrist, uh, mainly because it's just so misconstrued in a lot of ways. But, and we, we saw that he will be, the Antichrist, will one day be the deceiver and the manipulator who will seek to replace Christ. But this week, uh, you can almost put, I mean, if you notice in your uh, outline, this is just called part two, because I really think you could put these two together, but I, I felt like they were hard to do all in one message, so we broke it up a little bit. Let me just give you some context, though, from what we talked about last week. We saw... He, in verse 22, if you have your Bible open, I hope you do, it says, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. He is a figure, so that this, this Antichrist is coming. He is the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. And he's known by this slogan, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. And then we saw that he who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So we talked about discernment and the importance of discernment. So if you're taking notes, what we talked about last week, the first two points, were discernment thrives where truth reigns. The second was deception thrives where lies reign. But that's kind of incomplete if you, if you want to look at like, what this passage is really teaching. Be, and we need this message today to understand it fully. 
Because the question we should ask is, okay, discernment thrives where truth reigns, deception thrives where lies reign. The question we should ask is, how can the Christian guard against this deception of the Antichrist? And what we saw is there's many Antichrists. It's not just one. So the first question we're going to seek to ask is, how does truth begin to reign in our lives? And the second will be, what does this truth do once it is reigning? What does it produce in us? And I'm just going to give it to you here up front so you can follow along then. I want you to see that truth reigns when we abide in Christ. So if you're taking notes, that's your first point. Truth reigns when we abide in Christ. So that's how truth begins to reign. Let me give you the second one then. What does, truth produce, or what does this truth produce in us once it's reigning? And I want you to see that abiding in Christ produces in us confidence at his coming produces in us confidence at his coming. So going back to verse 24, if, you're, if you've got your Bible in front of you, it says, therefore let that abide in you which you've heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. So we're going to look at walking in discernment. So if you're taking notes, just that's your first Point. The first section is going to cover verses 24 to 25, and then the next section is going to cover 26 to 28. I want you to see walking in discernment. So when John encourages them to abide in the message, notice what he says. He doesn't say, abide in the message because the message is really, really old. You could take it like that. You could take it and say, he says, therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. So you could take it and be like, well, I'll take it and because it's really old, I'll, I'll, I'll believe it. And that's a fallacy. That's a fallacy that we see even in our own day, that many just believe their own tradition because it's old. So he's not calling us to do that. They remain in their faith tradition because it's what they've always practiced. Or they remain in their church because it's really, really old, and we have all this tradition. John's argument is not because it's old, but because it's true. The message of the gospel is to be abided in because it is true and it is right, not because it's old. So the antidote, he's about to give us the antidote, the vaccine, if you will, not to be whatever, the antidote for heresy, the vaccine for heresy. It's to be to return to the teaching given by the apostles. And it's this, very simply, abiding in Christ. The question is, what does John mean by abiding? So I would argue what John has in mind is the same thing that Jesus had in mind in John 15, like we read this morning. Actually, I would actually argue, go ahead and turn there to John 15, just real quick. I know I don't like doing this. I don't like turning to a bunch of different places. Because if the text is on the screen, if you ever have questions, the text is on the screen. But we're going to be looking very significantly at John 15. Because we need to understand what does this mean to abide in Christ? And Jesus is preparing to depart from this world in this context. He's preparing to depart from this world, and he's told his disciples, this is what he tells them, I am the true vine. It's starting in verse 1 of John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So Jesus gives us a very potent image of a vineyard. And he says himself, he is the true vine. Now, in the Old Testament, Israel was called the vine. They were the ones who were, they were supposed to be the, the true vine. But Jesus is saying here, no, 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 I am the true vine. 
And he goes further and he says, my father is the vine dresser, the one who comes and prunes and trims. And he says, every branch, verse two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So Jesus is giving this stark image of himself being the vineyard, himself being the vine. Now he's about to tell us something in verse four. Don't miss it. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. That should just give us cause to to pause for a second. That every Christian, every Christian that you've ever met, if they're truly a Christian, they, and to, to not sound heretical, if they're truly a Christian, they're abiding in Christ. They may look like a ragtag, they may look, it's hard to tell how they may look on the outside. But on the inside, if what Jesus is saying is true here, he says, the branch cannot bear fruit of its own. It must abide in the vine. And if it doesn't abide in the vine, it will literally wither and die. I love what B.B. Warfield, he said about this. He said, Christ is Christianity itself. He stands not outside of it, but in its center. Without his name, his person, and his work, there is no Christianity left. In a word, Christ does not point out the way to salvation. This is very important. Christ does not point out the way of salvation. He is the way himself. Connected to the vine. So that's the first attribute of what it means to abide in Christ. It's connected to the vine. And just so we're clear, even we see in the book of Acts, when when people are persecuted, Jesus literally comes to Paul and he says, Saul, and he says, why are you persecuting me? That Jesus could so link himself with his people that he could say, why are you persecuting me? So the question we initially asked was, how does this truth begin to reign in our life? And I want you to see is that truth reigns when we abide or remain in Christ. Truth reigns in our lives when we remain in Christ. When we are connected to the vine, that's when, that's when truth reigns. And so go, if you're still in John 15, I hope you are, look in verse 5 and 6. And he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. That's, what, that's the life of the Christian. The life of the Christian is one who's bearing much fruit. And then he gives the stark contrast for without me, you can do nothing. That should be a tagline. We should put that over the door frames of our houses. For without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, verse 6, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Jesus says that life itself is found in him. I think this would explain the estate of many of our churches. That many of our churches have sought to do ministry disconnected from the vine. Let that sink in for a second. Let that sink in and then just look for a second at some of the churches that maybe some of us have grown up in or have experienced. And honestly, that's what you could describe it as. An old, withered, dead branch. But there's there's still hope. He's He's not just saying there's no hope. 
The hope is to get connected to the vine. So how does someone go about abiding in the truth? What does that look like? And in 1 John, he's telling us, this is what he's telling them. He's reminding them. Therefore, let, back to 1 John 2, therefore let that abide in you, which you've heard from the beginning. What is that? What is the thing you're talking about? And he says in John 8, you don't have to point, you don't have to turn there, it'll be on the screen. John 8, 31, 32. It says, and Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, this is a moment where Jesus had spoken, he told them that he's the light of the world, and that some started to believe. And this is what he says. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Let that sink in. Hear what Jesus is saying. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples truly. And you shall know the truth. Hear it. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. You want to know how, you want to know how the truth reigns when we abide in Christ? It's we remain in the truth. So if you're taking notes, it's that second point. Remaining in the truth. And again, so often we see churches try to say, well, the Bible, it's, it's not really that important. We don't really need the Bible. We can set the Bible over here. No, 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 no. Jesus literally is, is saying that if you want to abide in me, in my word, that's when you'll be my disciple. That's when truth begins to reign, is when you abide, when you follow, when you listen to what Jesus has said. Now, I hope you still have a thumb, thumb mark at John 15. Maybe you don't. Continue to hear what Jesus is saying. You can hear how John is completely riffing. He's riffing like a guitar riff off of what Jesus has said. He says in verse 7 of John 15, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Because, they'll ask, because their desires have been changed. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. For Jesus, the life of the Christian is the life of one who abides and remains in his words. Which means that we cling to, we hold fast to the words that he has spoken. I love what D.A. Carson, he said, this is what, how he described this word abide. I thought it was really helpful. He said, but Jesus now lays down exactly what it is that separates spurious faith from true faith, fickle disciples from genuine disciples. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. So you want to know why maybe some Christians look like they're the dead branch and why some look like they're the live branch? This is the answer, very clearly. Some are holding to Jesus' words, and some are not. And an antichrist will use and abuse Jesus' words only to seek his own purposes. An antichrist will seek to undermine people's faith in trust in Christ's words. So do you want to know, you can just stop for a second and think, who in my life could maybe fall under this category of antichrist? You can find very easily, it's very easy to find one, because they're ones who say, that's not really Jesus' words. Don't, don't listen to that. What, what did your pastor say? He, oh, he said that about what Jesus said? That's a lie. Don't believe that. But a Christian, 
They are ones who obey and seek to understand and find the word of God more precious, more controlling, precisely when others force it fl- forces flatly oppose it. It is the one who continues in the teaching. The Christian is the one who continues to grow and to love and to appreciate the words of Christ. The Christian is the one who seeks the great love with which God has loved him and seeks to bring his life into greater conformity to it. I love the example of the Apostle Paul. He, he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy. You don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen. Near the end of his life, the Apostle Paul's dying. He knows he's dying. And Timothy, his young apprentice, he's encouraging him. And this is what he says to him. <laughs> What's such encouraging words at first? But know this, he says in verse 1, that in the last days, which is what John's talking about here, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, and we could just go on and on and on and on. Just pull up Fox News or CNN and you'll pretty much see what what Paul's talking about here. He's painting a horrendous picture for Timothy. What nice departing words. But listen to what he says. He goes down and he says, but you... But as for you, Timothy, continue in the words which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And then he says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. So with all of this in its context, this is what's coming for you, Timothy. All these people, all of this hatred, all of this wickedness, antichrist after antichrist, and what's he telling them to do? All scriptures God breathed. All scripture cling to the words of the Lord Jesus because truth reigns when we abide in Christ. So what is the promise? What is the promise for those who, who abide? John tells us, he doesn't, he doesn't leave us there. He tells us in verse 25. And this is the promise that he made for us. Eternal life. So that you're taking notes, that third point, eternal life. And Jesus, again, in that same discourse in John 15, he says later on in his high priestly prayer, he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. For Jesus, eternal life is that we actually know God. Eternal life can be best summarized as our experiencing, understanding, knowing God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. This doesn't begin just, this isn't just the beginning of the Christian life. This is the middle of the Christian life. And Lord willing, this is the end of the Christian life. It is beginning, middle, and end. Christ is foremost at the very front end, at the center of of what it means to abide for the Christian. And in 1 John, later he says, even in verse verse 2 of chapter 3, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God. And if it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, we know that when he is revealed, 
we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I wonder, as you're, as you're sitting there thinking about this, pondering Christ being the beginning of our lives, being the middle, being the end, I wonder what that does to you. Does it excite you? Does it, does it bring comfort to you? Does it, does it encourage you? If you're a Christian, or if you're one who, is, who realizes how broken and how messed up you are, to hear Jesus is the beginning of our life in God, the middle of our life, and one day will be the end is exciting. Because it means that we don't earn our favor with God anymore. It means that Christ Jesus on the cross has redeemed us and has welcomed us into his family. But if you're not a Christian, it probably sounds pretty dull. It sounds pretty boring. And it sounds probably pretty miserable. Because truth reigns when we abide in Christ. And if you're not abiding in Christ, then the logical conclusion is that falsehood is reigning in your life. So if we know that, if we know that truth reigns when we abide in Christ, why why don't we do this as Christians, maybe? There could be many answers we could give. I, I want us to focus on one. And I want us to focus on perspective. So for the Christian, if you maybe are like, man, I really struggle with abiding in Christ. I would argue it's perspective. Is that our perspective is awfully, oftentimes too earthly, too narrow. And notice what he says actually in verse 28 of 1 John. 1 John 2, 28, he says, And now, or, yeah, uh, yeah, and now little children, abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So, so I think one of the things that can help us actually kind of take a step out and say, why do we not abide? Let's see why. It's because we become too earthly, too, too earthly-minded, too temporary. But John here, he's trying to get us to focus. Hey, wait a second. Remember, he's coming back. Yeah, that Jesus you saw ascend, he's coming back to you. And in Revelation 19, we get a snapshot. We get a little picture of what that's going to be like. Let me read it. Maybe, maybe you need your, your, the Jesus that you worship to be expanded this morning. Revelation 19, 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it was called Faithful and True. Just so we're clear, we're not reading a fairy tale. We are reading what will literally one day happen And he goes on and he says, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe, dripped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in their fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Okay, so I'm not sure about you, but when I consider the coming of Christ, I'm a little humbled, just, just a little bit. Listen to what it says that comes out of his mouth, not kind pleasantries in this moment. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. 
And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That, my friends, is the Jesus we worship. And the question I have for you is what confidence can a person have in this? We don't serve a little baby Jesus that we just keep in the manger and we just keep him there. We serve an exalted, risen Savior that has a tattoo that says, King of kings, Lord of lords. What confidence can we have before this great Savior? What confidence can we have when he comes back? Slaying people with the breath of his mouth. I don't know about you, but I'm deeply humbled as I consider that. So when we talk about discernment, we're not talking about kind little pleasantries that the pastor wants to talk about. We're talking about things that deeply matter. Because John says that we, when he appears, we may have confidence. When he appears, blazing fire from his eyes, his crown crowned with many crowns, We can have confidence. We don't have to shrink back in fear. We can actually say, we've been faithful to your word. So the second part of this is confidence in our discernment. Confidence in our discernment. Listen to what he says in verse 26 again. I'll just read it again. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. So just keep in mind, this is why we see the discernment being here. Because he's written, so for those who have tried to deceive you. He's writing to the Christians. And he says, but the anointing which you've received from him abides in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So I want us to see confidence in our discernment. What is the confidence that we have? It's this. It's the word. It's, his, it's the word says. So this anointing which John is referring to is the exact same thing we saw earlier, which is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has means by which he communicates which his, with his people, which is the word of God. But why does he say, notice he says in verse uh, 27, he says that you, don't have, you have no need for anyone to teach you. Isn't that weird? Why, why would he say that? Because this letter itself is teaching them. So it, does that contradict your own letter? Is that what you're saying? Or, but no, that's not at all what we see from the scriptures. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, this is Paul. He says, and he himself gave us the... To, gave us some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Okay, so, so what John's saying here cannot be meaning here that New Testament believers do not need teachers. Okay, because the letter itself, it would undermine the very letter that he sent. So he's not meaning that. But what's he bringing up here? What I want us to see, and maybe, maybe this is kind of boring to you. This is not boring to me. This is really exciting to me. What I think he's pointing at is he's pointing to the Old Testament. And he's saying, it's not like it was back then. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah actually read it this morning, in Jeremiah 9, he he talked about knowing the Lord, and he talked about not boasting except for the fact that we know God. 
But later in verse 30, in chapter 31, he talks about the old covenant, what was, what was old in the Old Testament, and then he says there's going to come a day when there's a new, test, or a new covenant, and it will be different entirely. And this is what it says. This is what, and I think this is what 1 John's picking up on. He says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. Okay, and that, then he goes on and he says, For I will forgive their iniquity and, set, and their sin I will remember no more. So Jeremiah is looking forward to a day. He's saying, not like it was in the Old Testament, it will be different in the New Testament. So John's not denying the place of teaching. What he's doing is he's saying, in the Old Testament, you had a priest who mediated your relationship with God. And John's saying, that's no more. That is no more. You don't come here. We don't come here on church to church on Sunday because I mediate your relationship with God. Okay? There's something that the reformers, they got behind, they called it the priesthood of all believers. And what that meant is that all of us, because of what Christ has done, all of us have access to God. All of us. So not like it was in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they had to go to the priests, and the priests mediated their relationship with God, and he's saying it's not like that anymore. Which is why he's saying, you have an anointing. And Jesus, even himself, in John, in John 16, well, you won't have to turn there, it's on the screen. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you the things to come. So he's first guided the apostles into all this truth, and now what we have is the apostolic witness of what Christ has done. Notice, I love what one guy said, he said, notice that it is the, because the Bible is divinely inspired that it is valuable for teaching doctrine. In fact, the Bible is the only true source of sound doctrine. All teaching should be measured by whether it comports with Scripture or not. So abiding in Christ produces in us confidence at his coming. And we have that confidence, that confidence grows as we spend time in God's word. As we see more clearly that we don't serve a Jesus that we keep on just a little, little tiny Jesus that we like in a manger. No, we have a Jesus who's going to come one day and judge the nations. And that should humble us, but that should give us great confidence. But it's not the word only. It's never just the word only. Look at what he says in verse 27. But the anointing that you received, yeah, the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. So the second element of this confidence is the spirit and I put in quotes beside it, the Spirit affirms. So the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer is making clear and affirming what the Scriptures have said. And Paul, he, he talks about this exact same thing of the work of the Spirit. He says this in Ephesians 1, it's up on the screen if you, if you want it. Ephesians 1, 17, he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom, so now we're seeing what the Spirit does, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. 
Okay, so there's two elements here. There's wisdom and revelation. So that's revealing the knowledge of him. So that's the word part. But then he goes on. In verse 18, he says, The eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of your calling. So the Christian is not just saying, oh, we have this book and it's really important. That's not all we're saying. We're also saying that the Spirit of God, as this book says, has indwelt us as believers. And actually, as we read it, he affirms what we're reading. He affirms what we're reading and he confirms within our heart and illuminating our minds to what we've seen. The believer learns to recognize the work of the Holy Spirit. I know, just, I could quote a hundred verses here, but I'm trying to keep it as low as I could. Romans 8, 13 through 16. So he's the one who regenerates, the Spirit is, and leads them into all truth. But he also says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many are, hear this, led by the Spirit of God, These are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And we're going to see John just continually hammer this idea home that we are no longer slaves. We are no longer enemies. We have new life in Christ. The Spirit, he is the one who they learn to know who operates their faith. He is the one by faith they receive all the benefits of Christ. He is the one who comforts them by praying for them in unutterable groans. He is the one who testifies that they are indeed children of God. So abiding in Christ produces in us a confidence at his coming. So it's the word and it's the spirit. But what's the fruit? What is, the, what is the fruit of this word and this spirit? It's very simple. It's the fruit, if it's that last point, the fruit, confidence before him. The fruit of abiding in Christ is simply this. It's confidence. Confidence that when he comes, we will not be ashamed. To be ashamed, as it says there in verse 28, it, is, it refers to the guilt or the terror of, of judgment by God. Those who remain in him avoid this grim prospect. I like how the ESV renders it. It says that we may have confidence and not shrink back from his coming, in shame at his coming. The idea here is that guilt and terror of judgment cause us to fear at his coming. The guilt and the terror comes from knowing that we have been indulging in our vices. Let me say that one more time. The guilt and the terror or the shame that we as Christians would feel. You know where it comes from? It comes from when we indulge in our vices. The guilt and the terror comes from neglecting to abide in Christ, in his word and by his spirit. The guilt and the terror comes from our flesh, which makes Christians stupid to the realities of sin. Let me say that one again. That's a really good line. The guilt and terror comes from my flesh, our flesh, which makes me stupid to the realities of sin. I love what, what John Calvin says about this. He says, it's very helpful. He says, for faith 
is not a naked and frigid angst of Christ, but a lively and real sense of his power, which produces confidence. And he goes on and he says, Indeed, faith cannot stand while tossed daily by so many waves, except it looks to the coming of Christ and supported by his power brings peace to the conscience. So he's saying that by the word and by the spirit affirming this, that when he appears, we will rejoice. We will not be ones who are ashamed and who shrink back, but we'll be ones who are confident. A godly confidence delights to look on God in the face of Jesus Christ. A godly confidence calmly waits for Christ and does not dread his coming. Abiding in Christ produces in us confidence for his coming. It produces in us a spirit that stands firm and does not shrink back. I want you to picture, and we'll close with this illustration. And there's many parables in the scriptures to affirm this, but just picture with me, if you will, uh, a father who has two sons. We'll just use two, for instance. And the father goes away on a trip. And, and while he's gone, he says, hey, sons, I left you some instructions. I need you to take the trash out. I need you to do this. I love you. You're my sons. I care for you. And both the sons, they're sons. They're actually sons. Okay? So they're, they're inherit, they, they'll get an inheritance one day. But the son, they know the dad's gone. They're not really sure when he's coming back. Think about the two sons' responses. One son, one son says, man, I love dad. I love how he's cared for me. I love all that he's given me. I'm going to go read that letter. I'm going to make sure I'm going to do all my, my, my parts of the chore, chores. The other son says, dad, he loves me. He loves me so much. I'm not going to listen to that letter because <laughs> I know he's not going to be mad at me when he comes because I'm his son. What happens when the dad shows up? We all know the story, how, the, how it goes. The, son, the dad shows up and he says, boys, who did the chores? Oh, you, you didn't do your chores. Why? <laughs> like, I, I left you instructions. I love you. You are my son. But why did you not do them? So one experiences confidence because he knows I've walked in obedience. But the other one says, I didn't really do it. I really didn't care. I really didn't listen to your instructions. One has confidence, the other has shame. And friends, that's what's being offered to us. Joy, abundant. I want to point you back to what Jesus says in John 15. At the end of John 15, I find it just so striking. And John has been hammering home this idea of joy. But listen to the words of Jesus. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Friends, this is what's being extended to us is confidence and joy for those who truth reigns when we abide in Christ and who abiding in Christ produces in us a confident, joyful expectation at his coming. So we're going to move now into a time of reflection. And I just want to encourage you Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, you know, Daniel, I'm not even sure if I'm one of those sons in the Father's house. I would just encourage you to respond.
and to respond in, in what the Bible calls repentance and faith. Maybe, maybe you're also, maybe you realize, well, like, maybe I am one of those sons, but I'm one that has been walking in rebellion. I don't, I don't live in God's word at all. This is not meant to be a shame experience. What this is meant to, be do, to do in us is to bring a confident expectation. So I just want you to consider, take just a minute and consider what the Lord's impressing upon you.